for being in South Carolina for a while and bring greetings back from Emmanuel Bible Church. Uh, they're gospel partners there in South Carolina, and uh, I bring you greetings from them. Uh, also, just want to thank you for your generosity. Um, Pastor Appreciation uh, Day, uh, I'm kind of embarrassed about how generous you guys were. It, w- it was so kind. And uh, totally undeserved and unexpected, so thank you very much. Um, not unexpected because I don't think you guys are generous, but unexpected because, anyway, uh, thank you. That's all I need to say. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Recently, um, the host, Ernie Johnson, on uh, NBA on TNT. Anybody know what I, who I'm talking about? A couple of you. All right. You're in my good graces now. <laughs> The host Ernie Johnson was was uh, was had been interviewed because uh, because his his son thirty three year old son Michael has died, and uh, I, I was scrolling through some of those interviews and, and I came upon one where it talks Ernie Johnson was talking about how he came to know the Lord. Uh, his he and his wife had some children. They had adopted Michael from Romania. Turned out to have some some health issues and and uh actually ernie's life was actually going pretty well up until this point uh really successful host on nba on tnt with uh you know chuck and Shaq. you guys know who they are right okay good okay good uh and, and life is going pretty well and his wife started to go into church and she you know she started inviting him and he said as he as he sat under the word his heart was pierced just week after week and he's 41 years old, and it's the first time in his life he's been, like, opening the Bible, and, and the word has been piercing him. And he said, uh, his, these are his own words, that he, um, he went from a me-centered existence to a Christ-centered existence as the word was preached, and he sat under it. But it wasn't long until, uh, until one day in 2003, uh, you know, NBA on TNT was going really well. He was pretty successful. And he's shaving, and he notices there's a lump on his on his cheek. He's like, "What? Where did this come from? What What is this all about?" So he goes to see his doctor, and after a, a couple diagnoses, he finds out it's 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 uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's incurable. It's treatable, but incurable. So he sits down with his pastor at Starbucks, and he he tells him, "Look, what is happening right now? I want to know what's going on." Because to be honest with you, I just want to punch God in the nose right now. My life is going well, and then this. What's happening? And his pastor began to ask him some questions and write down on a, on a brown Starbucks napkin, you know, what's happening here? Where are we now, Ernie? Where are you now with trusting God? Are we going to trust God with a question mark? Are we going to trust God with a comma? Are you going to trust God if? Are you going to trust God when? Or are you going to trust God, period? Are you going to trust God, period? And this stuck with Ernie. He said from that time, after sitting and and reading through the Gospel of John and and, 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 and chapter 9 and remembering that the blind man, and Jesus says, "Why why was this man born blind? Jesus says, it's for the glory of God. And it changed his whole outlook. This lump on my cheek, this cancer, what is God doing? It's for the glory of God. So are you going to trust God if, 
Are you going to trust God when? Or are you going to trust God, period? This is the very question that Moses is facing in his life right now. In Exodus 3 and 4, we find a narrative about God calling Moses to be an, an instrument for delivering his people. And uh, Moses, or God has called Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. But he is going to do this, actually. God himself is going to do this. And Moses is confronted in his, with his own weakness, his own, his own self-doubt. His, and he's going to have to face the same questions. Are you going to quest, trust God with a question mark? Are you going to trust God with a comma? Are you going to trust God, period? What are you going to do, Moses? And with that question ringing in our ears, I want you to turn to Exodus 4. And while you're turning there, let me set a brief context. So Moses is 80 plus years old. He was rescued from certain death by Pharaoh's daughter. Remember this, God had rescued him miraculously. And he grew up in the halls of Egypt, government and education. And he had already tried, if you'll remember this from chapter 2, Moses had already tried to deliver his people. He tried and he failed at age 40. And now the adopted son of Pharaoh becomes a fugitive from Pharaoh. And he has been meandering in Midian for the last 40 years as a shepherd. And he's married to a woman named Zipporah. And, and he has at least one son named Gershom. And he's been tending to his new career as a shepherd. And out of nowhere, if you remember, God appears to Moses from a burning bush that's burning but not consumed. And from the bush, God calls Moses to this newfound career as a deliverer. And as you would imagine, maybe you have the same kinds of things when God calls you to something. Moses has questions, right? Even objections, actually. And in response to Moses' questions and objections, we will notice what God does. God doesn't flatter Moses, build him up through self-esteem. God reveals his own character to Moses as the self-sustaining one, the self-sufficient one, the true and unchangeable one, the true deliverer of his people. And you'll notice that before God does anything for Moses, he gives him words. So words precede deeds. He has called to him, he has called Moses to trust him, period. And God's going to show himself to be the true deliverer of his people. So Moses, we're going to, he's going to show himself that in two scenes. One is in Moses' refusal. Moses' refusal is met with Yahweh's revelation. Number two, Moses' return is guided by God's covenant loyalty. Moses' refusal is met with Yahweh's revelation of himself, his character, his person, his work. And Moses' return to Egypt is guided by God's covenant loyalty. So those are the two points we're going to hang our hats on. So hear God's word. We're going to read 1 through 17 to start. Then Moses answered, 
But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he, the Lord, said, throw it on the ground. So he, Moses, threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put it in his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But they will not believe even these two signs or, or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take shall, water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as a God to him. And take in your hand his staff, this staff, with which you do, with which you shall do these signs. This is God's holy word. So, Yahweh is going to meet Moses' questions, objections, and refusals by revealing his character and his works. He's, he's going to do this. He's, he's going to do this by, by revealing himself. What's God like? So Moses writes out of what he recalls. He's, he's writing to us. What he recalls happens in this moment in history. He remembers all his objections. And he remembers just the way the Lord answers him. So he gives these, these objections. The first one that comes to us in this chapter in verse 1. Sorry, that's going to distract me all day. That's fine. Okay. All right. You can edit that out and we'll come back to it. He remembers uh, his first objection comes in verse 1 of chapter 4. And from a human perspective, don't you think this is like totally legit? I mean, kind of all of his objections, I, I kind of get, don't you? Uh, when you look at yourself, you, when you see weaknesses, it's, uh, it's easy to say, God, I'm, I'm not sure like you know me like I know me. 
So he objects, but, you know, because of his, his human weaknesses. But he objects. He's like, well, what if these people don't believe me? What, what if they say you're lying, Moses? And totally understandable, once again, based on his past. Moses tried to deliver these people. And what was their response? Do you remember? In chapter 2, their response was, who, who made you a deliverer over us, right? Who made you the boss of us, kind of, you know, third grade stuff. Moses' past experience of trying to be a deliverer of his people ended up being a failure. And he anticipates it will fail again. Moses is interpreting the future through his past. God had told him in chapter 3, 18, the people are going to listen and they're going to believe you. And Moses says, I'm not sure I can trust this God. I'm not sure. So what is Yahweh's response going to be? What is the self-sufficient one's response going to be to him? Maybe this is you, actually, interpreting your future through your past. I don't think I can tr- quite trust those people. I don't, I don't think I can quite do what I believe God is calling me to do because of what's happened to me in my past. Or my own failures from my past. So what will God do for Moses? What God is going to do for Moses is provide signs of deliverance for him. Signs of deliverance. So his, his first objection is answered in, in the following verses, 2 through 9, with God just saying, look, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? Now, friends, we, we have to be honest. If we read the Bible, this is not the normative way God works. God doesn't normally work through signs and wonders. So when he does, we need to peek up, we need to perk up, and we need to pay attention to what it's teaching. He, signs are, and wonders are meant to get beyond, meant to get attention and point beyond themselves to something else. So in response to Moses' first objection that the people won't believe him, God reveals his power. He says, what's in your hand? And he, he, so he's going to reveal these three signs, through snakes, leprosy, and the Nile. So what are they teaching us? He says, what's in your hand, Moses? And Moses says, a staff. This is my shepherd's staff. God says, throw it on the ground. So Moses obeys and throws it on the ground, and it turns to a serpent, possibly a cobra. A cobra was some sort of adornment that the Egyptian pharaohs wore on their crown. It's sort of like, we don't get this in the text, but it's Egyptologists tell us this is this is true. They wore the cobra with the their hood sticking out in attack and ready to attack form, and, and they're saying they're daring their enemies to attack them. And now God is turning the staff into a serpent. And we remember, we remember, right, the seed of the serpent. There's going to be conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And here now the staff is a serpent, so what's going to happen? And it's almost comical, isn't it, as you read this story? Here's this 80-year-old dude. Running from the serpent. 
I mean, just picture it in your mind. I know it's scary. I, that's mean to laugh at that, right? But it's like, it's right for America's Funniest Home Videos. He's just like running and like maybe tripping over his, his robe or whatever he's wearing. So here's this 80-year-old guy running from this snake. But friends, the staff, the staff becoming the snake is not the final re- revelation of God's power. It's not the final revelation of God. The sign that reveals God's power and care for Moses is when he says, Moses, take it by the tail. And friends, up to this point, Moses has, has, has sort of been a coward in so many ways. He plucked up his courage to try to deliver his people, but then he, he ran. This is maybe the bravest thing Moses has done up to this point. Could you grab a serpent by the tail? I've never done it before. I would never even get close enough to, to even try to do it. But I, I've heard that's not how you actually pick up a snake, right? Because they can come back and bite you. You don't pick them up by the tail. You pick them up by the neck. Snakes are just gross, so I won't have anything to do with them at all. I, w- I would be more of a coward. But Moses, he, by faith, he picks the snake up by the tail, and it becomes a staff again. God is showing him, listen, there's no power of Egypt that can overcome me. I'm on the throne. I've created everything. You take that snake by the tail, it'll become a staff again to lead your people. So we ask the question, will the seed of the serpent win? Or will the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent? Moses grabbing the serpent by the tail should remind us that the serpent crusher is on the way. That we may, he says, He's done this, that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you, Moses. Moses, this isn't about you, but I'm going to show you how powerful I am. Not only do I have power over snakes, I have power over disease. So he tells them, put your hand inside your cloak. So leprosy was common in, in, in Egypt among the Egyptians, and it was incurable. And God telling Moses, look, put, put, your, put your hand inside your cloak, it becomes leprous. It's white as snow. It's eating away the skin already. And when he puts it back into his robe, it's clean. God is saying, not only do I have power over the government of Egypt, I have power over cleanliness and uncleanliness in myself. And I'm going to use you to either inflict or, or to withhold cleanliness and death from these people. And the third sign. God reflects his power over the Egyptians and what they trusted the most, the Nile River. So the Nile River, you probably already know this, but it flooded every year. It would flood every year, and and it would nourish the soil and make Egypt prosperous and lush, and so much so that the Egyptians worshipped the god of the Nile River called Tafi as the one that gave them life. So to corrupt the Nile River by turning the, its water into blood is to threaten the very existence of Egypt itself, the enemy of God, the seed of the serpent. So Egypt better watch out because Yahweh is on the move against their idols. Yahweh's on the move. God is about to do something great, and he's showing Moses, and he's asking Moses, will you trust me if, will you trust me when? Or will you trust me, period? Will you do this? Now, after all these signs and wonders, friends, how do you think Moses is going to respond to God? 
verse 10 tells us exactly how he does it. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Moses' next objection is of his personal weakness. The people won't believe me. God, I am so weak. And we can say that that is so true of Moses and of us. But notice, like I've already said, what the Lord does. He does not disagree with Moses. He doesn't say, no, Moses, you're actually really strong. Moses, you're great. Just look deep inside yourself and you'll see how great you are. He doesn't build his self-esteem. In order to build Moses up and make him ready for the task at hand, Yahweh points to himself again. Empowers signs and one powerful signs and wonders, and now in personal presence. In answer to the objections about personal weakness, God says, look at who I am. I, I just have to wonder, as you question God, as you, as you and I have objections to God and what he's called us to do, living faithful lives for him, taking the gospel to our neighbors, is your power from within or from without? He's asking us to look at the great I am, to behold him. So how does God do it? In verses 11 and 12, God says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? So he's taking him back with questions. He's taking Moses back with questions, sort of like he does with Job. Who made God's mouth? Who created you? Who created your mouth? I'm telling you to speak these words. You're saying you can't do it, but I'm saying, Who made your mouth? The answer is God. God made your mouth. Did I not make your mouth? Did I, do I not make people? Do I not make people with weaknesses and, and deficiencies? Who makes his mouth, him mute, deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? But our weaknesses are, are no match for God. He says, go anyway. And notice what he says as he commands him to still go in spite of his personal weaknesses, and that is that he will be with him. The covenant God promises his covenant presence with him. Obey me. Go. I'm going to be with you. It's going to be okay, Moses. It's not going to be okay because of how great you are. It's going to be okay because of how great Yahweh is. So he tells Moses, trust and obey him, period. And he will be with his mouth. He will teach him what to say. He will hold him fast. When your life is falling apart, when it's unraveling, when you have more questions and doubts than you have hope, God is saying, I will hold you fast. I will hold you fast. I will be with you. So God can do all these powerful things, Moses, you might say. You have made my mouth, God. You promised to be with me and teach me what to say. And what do you want the next words to be after God does all of this? Okay, God. That's enough. That's enough for me. I'll do what you say. 
But that's not what Moses says. And if we're honest, it's not what we would say either. When God's power and presence are often not enough for us to trust him and obey him. So Moses gives one more objection. One final objection, which is actually just a flat out refusal. Maybe you find yourself here with God. Moses in verse 13, after God says, I will be with you. I will teach you what to say. Moses says, please send someone else. Verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. The task is too great. Egypt's too big. I grew up there. I know what it's all about. I know how powerful they are. Please send someone else. I'm too weak. And the Lord answers Moses in the following verses. But I want you to notice something first. It's You cannot call God Lord and then tell him what to do. If he is Lord, if he is Adonai, if he is, if he is the one who is in control over everything, if he, is in, uh, if he is the sovereign, you can't say for him to do something else. He can't refuse to do what he asks and call him Lord. So Moses just flat out doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. All of us can sympathize with that, can't we? Maybe God has proved himself time after time, and yet, God, please send someone else. He's overcome, you know, by his past failures. He's overcome because, maybe because he's comfortable with this new career and his wife and his kids. Or maybe he's just overcome by his own weakness. And the Lord's patience says one thing, verse 17. Scriptures tell us in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What do you expect the next phrase to be? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And Moses died. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, away with you. Fine, go do whatever you want. I'm done with you. But the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He's fierce against our sin, friends. He wants us to trust him, period. But when we fail and even refuse, we see that his anger lasts for a moment. But it's over and good for a night. God makes concession to What a kind God. It doesn't mean he wasn't really angry. It doesn't mean he doesn't hate Moses' sin. He was. There's a flash of anger, and then there's a concession. Why does God make a concession for Moses? You know, in God's wise providence, in his, in, in, in his counsel, he has a job he wants Moses to do, and only Moses can do it. God doesn't need anybody, friends. He doesn't need Moses. He doesn't need you and me. He's self-sufficient. He's Yahweh. And yet our God has a job only you can do. God alone has a job he wants you to do, he wants Moses to do, 
And only you can do it. But God gives concessions to Moses. And he's calling him. He does not relieve Moses of his responsibility, but he gives him a mouthpiece in his brother. He says, you, uh, I know that he can speak. That's Aaron. There's Aaron, your brother. I know he can speak. Behold, he's going to come to you. His heart will be glad, and you're going to speak to him all the words, and then he's going to speak them to Pharaoh. You will be God to him. So God gives concession to Moses. He, he, he concedes and allows Moses to have this mouthpiece so that his people will be delivered, so that Moses will ultimately trust in God. Moses' refusal is met with a revelation of himself, his power, his, his miraculous signs and wonders, his covenant presence with Moses and with his anger, but mercy in sending Aaron with him. Moses needed someone to go with him. And God graciously provides someone else that he can see. God promised his own presence with him. Moses wanted someone he could see, so he gives it to him. So with this gift, God tells Moses, take your staff in hand and go, return. And there's just slight glimpses of Moses obeying, right? Even in picking up the staff, right? There's, there's faith there. And now God has answered all of his objections, and, and Moses, maybe reluctantly, but he does return. In verse 17, he says, take the staff in your hand with which you will do the signs and go. And Moses begins his return. And his return, we're going to see, is guided by covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, verse 18, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking their life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and when, went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So Moses is on his way. Now, I've already spent 20 plus minutes on the first half, as per usual. Hopefully the second half will go faster. To keep you at ease, some of you, so you won't fall asleep. <laughs> uh, so here, here we go. So God's, we're just going to cover three points in this. In, in God's covenant loyalty is God's loyalty to his own glory, God's loyalty to his firstborn, God's loyalty through his covenant signs. Okay, so let's just work quick, quickly through this. As Moses is returning back, he's obeying God. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Those are hard words, aren't they? What does this mean? God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart and kill his firstborn son. What, what is this all about? Friends, the first thing we need to see is that God is loyal to his own glory. God wants his miracles to be shown to Pharaoh because Pharaoh is setting himself up as a God against Yahweh and trying to get glory for himself. So the true God is going to show Pharaoh who has true power. Who is the true God? 
Yahweh. And the way he's going to do that is by hardening Pharaoh's heart in order to get this glory. There's lots of things we can, we can say about this, but let's just, let's just look at it. The battle that is to ensue between Yahweh and Egypt is going to bring God glory. And he's going to do it by showing who is more powerful and by showing that he can rescue his people. And the way that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart is by leaving Pharaoh to his own desires. I mean, giving Pharaoh what Pharaoh wants. He's going to allow him to persist in his own sin. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. Paul interprets this kind of scenario for us. And, and he says, the people that go against me, that willfully disobey creation's revelation of myself, justly deserve condemnation. Friends, that is all of us. And God says that at some point, people are going to sin persistently in such a way that I am going to give them over to them themselves. I'm going to give them over to what they want. He repeats that three times. Give them over. Give them over. Give them over. I'm going to give them over to what they want. God is not working against Pharaoh's desires here. God is giving Pharaoh exactly what he wants in the hardening of his heart. And we'll see, we're going to see this later on throughout uh, Exodus as, as we move through it. God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart by leading him to his own desires, to persist in his sin, so that he can show himself to be glorious, that he, he, he will rescue his people from his sin. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman will win. God is loyal to his own glory. The second thing we see in verses 22 through 23 is such an odd theme. God is loyal to his firstborn. In uh, 22 and 23, I should say, that God is not only going to harden Pharaoh's heart, he is going to rescue his firstborn son. This is the first time he calls Israel his firstborn. And, and God is loyal to his firstborn son. As God's son, it's a theme starting here starting with Adam, carrying on to Israel, and then on into the New Testament. Israel as God's own son. And so Adam failed as God's firstborn son. That Adam was to be the, the one who tended the garden, who obeyed God, but he and Eve failed. And now Israel, God is, is now calling Israel his firstborn son. And in that culture, the, the son followed in the father's footsteps. If the son was going to be, if the father was a shepherd, the son was going to be a shepherd. If the father was the king, the son was going to be the king. The son would take responsibility for the family and to be the provider, protector, and rescuer of, uh, of his family. Now God is calling Israel to be his firstborn son. Would Israel take up the mantle and be the son? God is saying, Pharaoh, you must let my son go to worship me, to serve me, to worship me. And God chooses to treat Israel as his firstborn son and then promises Moses that if, if Pharaoh doesn't let his son go to serve or to worship him, that he would kill Pharaoh's son. This is how serious God takes his covenant relationship with his people. He will defeat all of his people's enemies. He, 
he will not be merciful to all. He will be just. He will be just with his enemies. Friends, he's not only just with his enemies, he's also just with his covenant people. And this is what this this next theme shows us, that God is God is loyal to his own glory, to his covenant son, to his firstborn son, but also we see this through this covenant sign, verses 24 through 26. Maybe you've read this before and wondered, what is it doing here in the Bible, in this story? Has anyone wondered that before? I'm the only one? Okay, one other person. Okay, two. Check, good. I'm glad I'm not crazy. So at the lodging place, in verse 24, on the way, the Lord met him, and he sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is a confusing passage. I don't pretend to have it all together. There's probably something I'm missing here. But I I think the simplest explanation, as you read through it, and you just say, okay, I think this is about Moses not circumcising his son and God being angry with him for that. The son is circumcised. God's anger is abated. Friends, I, I think that's the natural meaning of the text. Now, what makes it difficult is we're not sure who the antecedent of him is in, in, in uh, several of these sentences. Is God after Moses or is God after Moses' firstborn son? We don't know. But it, it seems like God is going to kill Moses or his firstborn son because Moses has not circumcised someone in his family. God was coming to kill Moses And so Zipporah, Moses' wife, realizes this, circumcises her son, and and throws it at his feet, and God's anger is abated. The reason we think this is because the only thing that appeases God's anger is what Zipporah does. Now, Genesis 17, 14 tells us that God's covenant with Abraham meant that any male member of the covenant household had to be circumcised. If they were, if they would not, that he, God, would cut off the people, he would cut off that person from the people because he had broken the covenant. This is how serious God is about the covenant sign. Why does he care about the covenant sign so much? Because it shows God's covenant with Abraham, God's God's um, promise to Abraham that he he would make a great nation out of him. And this sign showed that God was going to fulfill his covenant and that that person was connected to this promise. And if you weren't connected to the promise through the sign, you were an outsider to God's grace. God was going to make sure that his deliverer, lowercase d, his deliverer, Moses, was in line with the covenant demands before he went on to rescue his people. Zipporah gets this, and she says, you're a bridegroom of blood. We, we think this is probably covenant language. We don't know if she's mad or not. We're, we're not really sure, but, but now his whole family is, it has the covenant sign, and they're right with God, and God's anger is appeased. God is, God is making sure that his deliverer 
is in line with his demands. And all of this, right, the, the weirdness of all of that. And, we, and you can talk to me at the door, and, and it's fine. If you disagree with me or you think there's something else going on, we can, we can totally talk about that. But all of this is pointing to Moses and the covenant of, and the covenant loyalty of Yahweh looks forward to a greater reality of the true deliverer. Jesus of Nazareth was God's final firstborn son. He, he was born to Mary and Joseph. And, and in order to escape Herod's genocide, Joseph took his family to Egypt. Hosea 11.1 1 predicts it and talks about it. And it says, out of Egypt, God called his son. He called his son back to the land of Israel. And Matthew 2.20 picks up on that theme from Exodus and from, from Hosea 11 and says the same thing about Jesus. The angel told Joseph that those who sought the boy's life were dead, so it was safe to return, just like Moses. It was safe to return uh, to, to Egypt to rescue his people. But the punishment of, of killing the firstborn son, right? The, this punishment that he promises on Pharaoh, I will kill your son if you will not let my people go to worship me. This is, this is a justice. But now on Jesus, the punishment will now fall on his firstborn son, Jesus. In the New Testament, he comes out of Egypt to rescue his people. And, and the firstborn is not spared. But he's killed in order that he might save other sons alive. Jesus, God, put his firstborn to death. And th this is what all the covenant language, I think, is talking about. It's pointing forward to the day when, when, when Jesus will, he will be that one. He will be the true deliverer. With many groanings and tears. He will come to God and he will say, not my will, but yours be done. And the punishment will land on him. Friends, and the result of covenant, the covenant loyalty of God is that he is saving a people for his own possession. Verses 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Friends, the result of covenant loyalty is God getting a people for his own namesake. This is exactly what's happening through the rest of the Bible. This is what happens in, in Ephesians as God tears down the walls. This is hap what happens in Revelation as around the throne, many people are, are proclaiming his name in belief and worship. And we see just, just brief, faint signs of that here. 
And we, we know that Moses and the people are going to fail and disbelieve God again. But right here, we see hope, friends. And maybe you need to see a little bit of that yourself. God's covenant loyalty is going to secure a people for his name. I don't know how many people are here. 50, 60 people. You are a proof of that. God's covenant loyalty has drawn out belief in what he demands of his people, worship. What he's done this morning. And in your sanctification, in your, in your struggle with sin, look back to God's covenant loyalty even in your objections, even in your refusals, God's covenant loyalty to you through his son makes it a sure thing that you are going to be the people he's created you to be. So that, that sin that you cannot get over, that you feel like you cannot get over, that hardship that God has called you to right now, his covenant loyalty to you assures that he will get the glory due his name, that you will believe, you will worship. So friend, if, if you are not a Christian, if, if, you have, if you have never put your trust in Jesus, I hope you see that this great God who has all this power, who is just, is also merciful. And he's calling to you this morning. Put your trust in him. The Christian, non-Christian life, what, what's it going to be? Will you trust God if? Will you trust God when? Or will you trust God should? He delights in your belief, your trust, and your worship. Expect it and obey him. Father, 